I'd like to welcome y'all to Secrets from the South. I'm your friend, Scotty Ray, along with my co-host, Terry. Now, you'll quickly catch on that we don't sound like the man on the 6 o'clock news. We talk a little slower, and we've got a southern drawl. But nonetheless, we've got a great podcast lined up just for you. We'll bring you some interesting stories. They're sometimes crazy and a little unbelievable. But it would be just plain impolite not to share them. So get yourself comfortable. Find some southern charm and a glass of iced tea and enjoy. Have you ever been watching the news or maybe listening to a podcast and hear a story and think, how did they get away with it? You know, without a doubt, they're guilty, they're crooked, and they hurt others to get what they wanted, but yet no justice was served. And the bad part about this is it's been going on ever since Betsy Ross got that first piece of thread and started that flag. In most cases, the truth lies in a cemetery, never to be known. But in some cases, just maybe, somebody wrote it down and passed it on. It may be long forgotten, but the truth is right before you. Today, we'll flip the pages of history back to 1890 and expose some of the greediest people that ever lived and were willing to kill to get what they wanted. Welcome to Kemper County, Mississippi, better known as Bloody Kemper. Today's episode is titled, The Policy. So, Scotty, we're doing something different this time, aren't we? Yes, we are. This is one of these stories that, you know, we talked about that we've said so many different times that we would tell true stories here and there. And this is one of those times. We did. And I think this is going to be a change from what we've done in the past where we pick a topic, and we talk about it. This is going to be you really basically narrating a story that is a real story that happened in your backyard back in the 1890s right after the Civil War. So who do I need to try to sound like, Mike Rowe, or do I need to try to sound like uh, James Earl Jones? If you can pull off James Earl Jones, you got it made. You know, I almost want a copy of the Bible that he just done. Have you seen the advertisements for that? No. Yeah, he started doing that. I think it would be pretty cool to have that. I think Scotty Ray's voice is pretty good, though. But for our listeners, just settle in. This is something totally different, but real events. And I've got my glass of sweet tea, and I'm ready. You go, Scotty. Today's story is about a small county in Mississippi. Back in the 1890s, Kemper County was also referred to as Bloody Kemper. The county was known as Bloody Kemper because of the county's high homicide rate, violent reputation, and mysterious series of murders. These murders are the focus of today's story. This story is about greed, deception, poison, and death rendered from the most unlikely person, a trusted small-town hero. Did I also mention that that small-town hero was a renowned doctor? Kemper County is located on the central eastern border of Mississippi. Today, Kemper County comprises of several small incorporated communities and two small towns known as DeKalb and Scuba, the town which I grew up in. I'd like to be able to tell you that Scuba survived and is a thriving town. But, like most southern towns, jobs became scarce and most families moved away. As you cross the railroad tracks and head down Main Street now, you'll find just hulls of buildings that once were. The movie theater. There was a car dealership, banks, stores everywhere. And at the end of the street was the railroad depot. It's been long forgotten that three miles due east of there is where Scuba originally was. 
It was 1856 when the railroad came through, and a celebration was held to drive that last spike in to celebrate the town of Scuba, even having Jefferson Davis in attendance. All that remains of the original site is an old graveyard just east of town. As a small boy, I could ride my bike anywhere in town without any fear of trouble. I'd pass by and see Lynn Jr. Quarles sitting on the front porch. I'm told that his dad was one of the first ones to ever make a phone call in the state of Mississippi. As you rounded the corner downtown stood the remnants of an old movie theater, the Lion Theater from years before. I'd pass by Mr. Red Frost and his drugstore, where I got my first paid job as a kid, putting the clarion ledger together on Sunday mornings for everyone. There was the stop where the Greyhound bus stopped across from the depot. As you traveled on down, you'd pass Miss Walls and round the corner to where the bank was and Mr. Floyd Townsend, who had the only dry-cleaning service in the county. And did I mention on the other end of town, the thriving community college that we have, with an even more successful football program? You may have seen the EMCC lines on Last Chance U, and that all began with Mean Bull Sullivan, the toughest football coach there ever was. And if you don't believe me, you can go back and find that in Sports Illustrated 1984. But in the 19th century, the land was primarily developed for cotton cultivation. It was a hard living by most standards, even for those who were more fortunate. The county consisted of hard-working people with little opportunity other than farming, and most with little education. Even with the presence of law enforcement, it was ran primarily by vigilantes. And for many years, the county was known for its constant bloodshed, innocent lives lost, and deep, buried secrets that members of the community kept to themselves for the safety of those they cared about. To my knowledge, there's two books in existence that even mention these stories, the first being The Iconoclast by Captain Guy Jack. You'll hear more about him later in the story. From my understanding, the captain had to rewrite the book twice, and the reason for that is when it arrived on the train in town, it was met by a mob and all the books were burned. The second book is by Hewitt Clark called Bloody Kemper. I'm even told they're looking at making a movie out of this. In the 1890s, life was much harder, and survival was at the forefront. It was just the way of life, the way it was back then, and most were accepting. Life consisted of growing and harvesting your crops or having a small store, if you were lucky enough to have one. Some land to call your own, and last but not least, enough food on the table to feed your family. Well, back then, only a small percentage of residents of Kemper County could say that they were any better than their next-door neighbor. And of those, everyone in Kemper County knew who they were. They were the respected and revered pillars of the community. One of the most respected in the county and well-known throughout Mississippi and beyond was William. He was not only a well-known physician in Kemper County, he was also the local medical examiner. And better yet, a decorated doctor during the Civil War. He had endured the harsh life of war, and he had scars just like every other soldier that had to endure the years of starvation, sickness, and death. Most were just trying to survive until the war ended and they could return home to their loved ones. William had been a successful doctor in Kemper County for years, and from all accounts, he had transitioned into a normal life. But sometimes looks can be deceiving. For William, well, William simply wanted more. It wasn't enough to take care of his patients and serve his community. He had spent years doing that in battle and was done with that life. He wanted the good life, a better life. Most of the residents in Kipper County were not wealthy. They were far from it. So if the common person needed the services of William to help heal their sick child or save their dying wife, those services were not free. And unfortunately, most residents simply did not have the money to pay. 
You see, William did not survive a war as a decorated hero just to get by. He deserved, he craved for more. He wanted the wealth and security to live better than just comfortably. A plan was hatched, and perhaps not intentional at first, but it would work. It had to, and for a while it did. You see, William decided that some of the residents were worth more dead than alive. He was tired of providing services to his patients only to find out they couldn't pay for them. He, with the help of other members of the county, were able to secure life insurance policies for unsuspecting residents of Kemper. As you probably know, the only way a life insurance policy works, or better yet, it pays, is when that insured person dies. Most residents in Mississippi had no life insurance policies, and of those that were obtained, they were of insignificant amounts. Well, for the simple reason of being not being able to make the monthly payment. But if someone else made those payments on your account, without your knowledge, then that was a different story. And what if that person verifying your health condition was your own entrusted doctor? The same one that perhaps paying the premiums and the same person that would benefit from your death, your demise. That's exactly what William cooked up. He carefully selected his victims without their knowledge or consent and set back and determined that the best date of their death. Who better to make sure the victim succumbs to death? Looking if it were natural causes, then examining the body and confirming the death to be of natural origin than your own trusted local hero and doctor. A perfect recipe. No one knowing the wiser and no one to question the doctor, medical examiner. Over the course of several years, several seemingly healthy residents of Kemper County suddenly fell ill and died. Elijah L. Edwards, who at the time, from all accounts, was a young, healthy husband and father of three, was one of William's first suspected and later reported victims. Although at the time, the untimely death of Elijah was without plausible explanation and was rare for someone of 24 years, no one mistook it for anything other than bad luck. Therefore, no action was ever taken regarding Mr. Edwards and no evidence was produced. Whispers and speculation did grow when shortly after Edwards' death, William married his widow Cora and took in her three children, Maud, Lewis, and infant William. And even though it was widely speculated that he held no affection for her, much less her children. Sadly, within a short span of their marriage, William the infant mysteriously died. Many residents in the community suspected that infant William died at the hands of his stepfather, William. From all accounts, baby William was as normal as a healthy boy that had no known health conditions before and after William and Cora wed. Some say if it were not for the intervention of a concerned resident, the other two children who were also ill might have met the same fate as poor infant William. An uneasiness blanketed the community. Not one, but two members of the family had died. The two remaining children had been sick as well. Was this just another case of bad luck? Did their deaths have something in common? Some undetected illness that had plagued the Edwards family without their knowledge? Residents noted that others had reportedly died similar deaths. By the time the death of Charles Stewart occurred, the residents of Kemper County were more than a little suspicious. There was a link, a common thread. William had been one of the last people to speak with Mr. Stewart. He had prescribed and provided a capsule to Mr. Stewart and had instructed him to take the capsule before bed. Mr. Stewart did as instructed. 
He ate dinner, prepared for bed, and took the capsule and settled in for some much-needed sleep. Sleep that would not come. Shortly after taking the pill, he awoke to agonizing pain and spasms. His wife could do little to soothe him. He was restless. His hands, arms, and legs and torso spasmed. His health deteriorated rapidly, and he displayed the unmistakable symptoms of someone being poisoned. Perhaps death would have continued for that small southern community if it had not been for Mr. Stewart's last dying words. Just before Stewart died, he said to his wife, I'm going to die. I have been dead. The good Lord has sent me back to tell you that William has killed me, has poisoned me with a capsule he gave me tonight. The guy Jack, the local merchant, had insured his life and hired William to kill him. Now this dying statement, witnessed by Stewart's wife and helper, was enough to have both arrested. It was determined that the capsule provided to Mr. Stewart was strychnine. Strychnine is a white, odorless powder. It can be mixed with a liquid in a capsule form, and it was provided to Mr. Stewart. Now, a brother-in-law of William, Mr. A.E. Jackson, said that he firmly believed the doctor had killed as many as 50 men, women, and children. Can you believe that? 50 people. One can only imagine the painful muscle spasms arching of the neck and back, and desperation to breathe in order to get much-needed air in the lungs, as each victim experienced when they unknowingly and unsuspecting took a capsule provided by their lifelong physician or drank their last shot of whiskey or a glass of milk before bed, as they had done every night before. No one of modest means or statue would confront a well-known doctor in the community of foul play much less confide to neighbors of any suggested wrongdoings. These were different times, and law enforcement was not the same as it is today. What primarily governed back then was enforcement by numbers, by influence, by money. Ninety-nine percent of Kemper County had neither. Most were forced to keep their thoughts to themselves and remain silent with their fears of wrongdoings. Remember, these were troubling times, and one with a gun outweighed one without. One with money or influence was stronger than one without. You see, time has a way of catching up with you, eventually, as in the case with William. By now, the residents of Kipper County had grown impatient and angry. Too many people had been lost at the hands of William. They finally had their proof. In fact, while William was being held in the county jail, it was reported the governor had offered to provide additional law enforcement to keep the mob outside the jail at bay. They wanted justice. While they might have been poor and hard-working citizens, they would do justice just like everyone else. The authorities said they had positive proof showing there was an organized gang composed of prominent businesses and professional men in Kemper County, which grew rich by insuring the lives of poor people and then poisoning them for the insurance money. None were ever charged with wrongdoing. Some said they escaped conviction because they were able to influence and buy officials. William was not so fortunate. William was convicted. He took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, pleading his case to anyone that would listen. In the end, the decision remained the same, guilty. He was sentenced to death by hanging for the poisoning of Mr. Stewart. He was sent to Parchman Correctional Facility to await his own death. Unfortunately for the victim's loved ones, who had so patiently waited for justice, he died a few short months after arriving. He died at the ripe old age of 63. If it were not for the quick wit of Mrs. Stewart, and by then 
his suspicion investigations of several prominent insurance companies in the U.S., William might have continued his practice of killing the unsuspected. In the end, William got what was coming to him, and the insurance companies were made the wiser. Now, no one can say what kind of person William was in his early life as a small boy. I would imagine he was no different than any other boy growing up in his birth state of Alabama or Mississippi or any other state during that time. But as with most killers, their desires of who they want to be, what they want to achieve, and what they want to acquire, get the best of them. Something changes. Something snaps. But perhaps it was the war that changed him, as it had for so many that were in the trenches of death and despair. Regardless of the reason, he was a cold-blooded killer. With his main motive being of financial wealth, and perhaps a desire to have even more clout within the community. William Howard Lipscomb died. Not a decorated war hero, or an accomplished physician, and definitely not a pillar of the community but a disgraced and monster that betrayed the very fabric of the oath and duty of a physician. In an old cemetery, not far from where I grew up, surrounded by a rusted fence in an overgrown landscape with residents of many years gone, there is a tombstone with the following quote, As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you shall be. Prepare for death and follow me. Scotty, you're a good storyteller. Oh, now. But, the, you know, that was so true. This all happened. This is not. And there's even talk about, I've heard that uh, Clark's book might be turned into a movie, Bloody Kemper. Really? Now, whether that actually materializes in the end, but there is talk of that. You know, it's hard for you and I to fathom what life really was like back in the 1890s and early 1900s. But, you know, you can kind of picture it by the way you told the story that, just life in the South in those days was rough. I mean, just like you said, putting food on the table and a lot of things that we take for granted now. Yeah, and the only way to get money at that point in time, and again, this is Reconstruction, is sometimes to do something that's not quite legally, or not quite legal. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah, and I think that what's interesting about this story is the fact that you had somebody that, while they weren't making a lot of money as the story indicates a lot of times the physician that served these people didn't necessarily get paid every time well you know and it reminds me of an episode i saw a few weeks ago of little house on the prairie of uh, doc baker getting paid in chickens and and eggs and different things because the people just didn't have the money to pay yeah and you hear a lot about back in the days that physician would get paid by any means that somebody had and if that was a bushel of corn or a pig or maybe they did have some money or, you know, whatever. But it just in some ways, it's when you think about insurance and the regulations that you have today, it was a different world back then. I mean, if you had the means to take out an insurance policy on someone, you could. And in today's world, I mean, you could take a policy out on me and I could take one out on you if I thought that there was going to be a hardship in our business, but there are regulations in who can take a policy out, and you have fraud departments now. You didn't have that back then. So these little poor people that were just trying to get by, it's sad to know that unsuspecting, you know, they had no idea this was coming, they trust 
someone, who are people that you trust the most? Your physician, your pastor. I mean, he was trusting just in the position that he was in, and he obviously took advantage of that and killed these folks. You know, there's a, there's rumor of the story of this, and if you read either of these books, and I think one of them goes into it, was there was a guy that rode into town on a horse. Uh, there were three bars. He stopped at one, had a drink with the doc before he made it out of town. After he had had an insurance policy taken out on him, he fell off his horse dead. And there were so many, and all of this is alleged, you know, that you hear the word 50 deaths. That's all alleged. None of that has been confirmed. I think it, to, to make sure that we're factual, he was only charged with the death of one individual. But, and of course, stories get bigger and bigger over they time. Do. You know, before you know it, in 10 years, we'll go back and tell the story and it will be a hundred people. But, you know, so we tend to exaggerate, but I think it's safe to say that there were multiple deaths or suspected deaths. And they were all the same way with a capsule or something like that, that you wonder how long would that have gone on in today's world? You know, it's just different times. And back then, you didn't have, a, if, if you didn't have money, you didn't have a lot of influence. You really were not in a good place to stand up and say, you know, something's going on here because who's, who's going to believe, believe you? you? Yeah. <laughs> There are probably countless stories just like this all across America that will never be told, that will never be known, all because somebody wanted something more, something that they were willing to take from somebody, and they were willing to kill to get it. But just this once, this story did make it. Someone spoke the truth, and it survived. But there's one thing that I do know. We should all study our history, because greed always repeats itself. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and will continue to listen more. We promise to provide stories that intrigue you, provide a little humor, reflect our heritage and culture, whether it's strange and alarming. Please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Let us know whether you liked or disliked. Do you have a story to share? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Please email us at comments at secretsfromthesouth.com and provide a brief description of your story along with contact information, and we'll be in touch. Until next time, well, you know a secret from the South.